Well, good morning to you. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC. And, uh, and if you're new, we would love to uh, get to know you more. There's opportunities uh, along the way to uh, engage more fully. So we would just ask that you would uh, sign uh, the, the welcome book at the, the welcome center there so that we can uh, make contact with you and get to know you and interact. In the fall, we'll have several opportunities where there's a newcomer's breakfast and a starting point that will be uh, in the fall. But we just concluded those uh, in the last... Uh, uh, weeks. So uh, you'll have to wait till then to get more of that, but we would love to at least begin to engage you uh, up this time. So um, one of the things that we made an announcement to back in February, the last week in February, was that uh, Arthur Woods, who is our, our lead youth pastor here at LAFC, uh, had uh, come to a place where he had fulfilled the responsibilities and triggered a policy that says he is eligible for a sabbatical. And, uh, and so our policy here at the church is that after six years of serving, you then in your seventh year are, are now eligible to take a sabbatical. And he hit that trigger point a year ago, um, so he actually waited a full year uh, for the sake of doing it at a time that's best for the church. Well, it was also said that day that uh, there are more sabbaticals coming. Here's the blessing in this. I know some people sounded, sounded alarmed by that, but it's actually very good news. Here's why. And historically at LAC, this policy has long existed, but very few ever triggered it because the tenure uh, and the lifespan ended up being much shorter. Uh, and so the fact that we have a team that is wanting to stay is a good thing. And so this enables us to go. So back in 2012, I believe it was, uh, we sent Ken on a sabbatical. Was it thir- or 2013? That's good. Uh, because otherwise, it'd be too soon on the other end. Uh, but in 2013, we sent Ken on a sabbatical. And, and a big part of how the church transitioned from uh, uh, Pastor Winnie's uh, leadership to mine, in that bridge time, a big part of that smooth transition was Pastor Ken and his leadership here among us. And so when I arrived, you could tell he was doing well, but he was tired. And, and there was a lot of ambiguity to the future because, you know, I'm coming in new and he would be the, the tenured in, individual on the team. So we talked to him about going on a sabbatical. And, and if I was to be quite honest, he wasn't excited about it. And, and we were saying, no, you really need to go. And then he started thinking, are they getting rid of me? And, and so uh, we were able to say, no, this is not that, that at all. And so we, we created a plan by which he could go on that sabbatical and have some very targeted, strategic opportunities during that time so that when he came back, he would be well-positioned to lead going forward. And what I saw happen in that man for the, the next several years was nothing short of envy for me. As I looked at what God did in his life, I just said, that is what sabbaticals are for. They're meant to recharge you so that you can relaunch as a leader and bless the church. And I have personally been blessed by what God did in his life while on sabbatical. And so uh, you need to understand that because when I started, several of the pastoral team members had resigned around that time. So we hired a bunch of people at around the same time, which means that there's a bunch of us eligible for sabbatical and we're kind of delaying it. So uh, 
Arthur waited a year. I'm about, uh, I'll be starting mine in two weeks. And, uh, and so I will be about 10 months behind when my eligibility date began. When I get back in mid-August, I'll high-five Matt Sawada, and he will head out the door and be gone till mid-December. When he gets back, we have about a four-week window of everybody here, and then Bima heads on sabbatical, and, and he will be away for about three months. And then when he gets back, when the building is finished, we'll let Joel go. So just being honest, and he knows it, and he accepts that. So he's the one we can't schedule because, quite frankly, we cannot afford him to go until that building is finished because he's the one inter interfacing with the builders and the architects and, and so on. But uh, so you can, if you want to help him find rest sooner than later, you can help us get to $3 million, uh, more quickly. But uh, um, having said that, you won't see me for the next um, three months after next Sunday I'll be here and then I'll be away for three months. However, there is a caveat to that. If we hit the three million mark while I'm away, which is very possible because there's been some pretty significant gifts in these first few months. If we hit the three million mark, I will come back to celebrate with the church for that Sunday. Hint, hint, wink, wink. If you want to upfront, upfront your gifts, you can do so, and then I'll come back a little sooner and celebrate with you all, and I really, really hope to do that. Um, and so we're excited about what lies ahead. We're going to share more about where, where things are at. We are meeting regularly right now with architects. They're drawing the plans up for builders to use uh, to actually build the facility, and uh, we're very encouraged by the giving of the church and the pattern of giving, and so we do feel it's very possible we could be breaking ground this fall. Uh, but again, that's got to be based on the consistent giving that we're already seeing and continuing forward. But uh, uh, so we're excited about the future. I do hope to come back. My three aims of my sabbatical are to uh, rest, refresh, and reload. And so my intention during this time is, yes, there will be points of rest, but I had to propose what I would do with my sabbatical and get that affirmed and approved by the elders. And so I want to give you just a quick outline of what I asked for and the elders have affirmed. So I will begin my sabbatical on May 17th. On May 18th, I will be getting on a plane with a group of people led by Elmer and Linda Landis, and we're going to be going to Israel. Uh, so I will be spending my first two weeks of sabbatical uh, in Israel. I already have a plan that I'm going to get left behind. Uh, Elmer and his team will come back to the States, and then I will continue on from uh, Tel Aviv onto Azerbaijan, where I will be uh, spending time with some, some of our strategic partners, missionaries that serve in Azerbaijan, the Quivenants. And so I'll spend a few days in that country, uh, which is right next to the country of Iran, if you are curious where that is. And so I'll be spending time there, and then I'll come back and I'll have some time where my, the list that my wife is producing is going to get rather long. Uh, the the honey-do list of, of getting things done around the house. And then mid-July, uh, I'm going to be going to California, and uh, I'm going to be spending time shadowing the, the leadership team of High Desert Church. Now, some of you are very familiar with that term if you're around Joel, because that's every fourth word for him, High Desert Church. Uh, but that's where he served for uh, over 10 years in ministry there. I'm going there to find out what dirt he, we can get on him so that when they come back, we don't have to send him on sabbatical because he's just gone. And, uh, and so, but no, while I'm there, 
uh, the point is, is that they have a very similar philosophy of, and vision for ministry as, as we do, but the pastor's been there way longer than I've been here, and there's just so much to learn. And so going with me uh, will be Alex Swan, who is the person over here standing at this mic playing a guitar. Now, I highlight that. The reason why he's going with me and, say, not another person going along is that as of this past week, Alex was affirmed and approved to become our next lead worship pastor here at LAFC. So, so Ken went on sabbatical, and we just took us a while to get rid of him. But no, really what happened is, is Ken is transitioning into, a, a, quite frankly, a greater role here at LAFC. Uh, he's going to be taking on a lot of the, the behind-the-scenes support for our services, the technologies, and so on. But also, he's going to be uh, leading some of our, our pastoral care on the visitation side of it because we really feel like we need to get better at, at ministering to people that are struggling with health issues or are shut-ins. And, and so he's going to create a strategy and lead that strategy out for us as a church going forward. And so, and Ken will still be on stage uh, leading uh, from occasional, but you're going to see his primary Alex uh, on stage beginning in the fall. Uh, and so Alex is getting married uh, in August, so there's a lot of life change going on for him. And uh, are, are, just by chance, is Allie in here? Uh, Alex and Allie, would you just stand, please? All right, there we go. Now, there might be a concern. This hit me later after we made the decision. I started thinking, maybe I have buyer's remorse. But I'm thinking through, it's like, is it a wise thing for a church to be primarily led on a Sunday morning by two blonde guys? And I think it's like, yes, it is okay. But we are going to need a lot of help up here. So, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to partner with him in this, in this journey. And so uh, you're, this is exciting. We're, I'm going away as part of this to refresh and reload and, and to, for the fall because we do have a lot of exciting things going forward. The timing is perfect because when I get back, I'm going to need all the energy that God could possibly give for the season that lies ahead. And I believe that the, the excitement that is building here at LUC, there's so much that's going to be happening in the next couple years, and I'm excited to go into it fully refreshed and reloaded uh, to be leading in that. So my final part of my sabbatical is taking my family on the final two weeks uh, once baseball season ends, and we're going to drive, do a road trip out to Colorado and, uh, and, and spend a couple days in Colorado, then Wyoming, Montana. We're going to go see the, the geysers there at, uh, at Yellowstone, and then we'll conclude our, our main visuals of going to Mount Rushmore, and then we'll try to get as quickly through the plains as we possibly can and, uh, and come back here. And then literally we'll come right back in to being uh, back on board here at LAFC. And so we'll appreciate your prayers. Again, I'll be here next week. There'll be a time uh, for that time to pray together as a body. I am not looking forward to this. And that's not being here among you. Uh, that is not 
something I get excited about. In fact, I, it's a very bizarre thing. And I, I've told my wife, I said, I think it's a good thing that I'm beginning by going to Israel because I think I'll be going through withdrawal of being here among you. And so, um, I, but I am already anticipating and planning for the fall. And we will be doing a series on prayer uh, beginning in the middle of September, on September 9th, and what it means to experience and know God through prayer. And so that will be where we'll go uh, this coming fall. So having said that, please celebrate with us. Do not see this as a negative. We have a great team that's prepared to teach this summer. Uh, the series is called Ablaze. And basically what it is, is taking scriptures that have impacted each of the communicators that will be up here, where it transformed and changed their life. And so that's going to be the series this summer. Uh, Nick Todd, who did the announcements up here, he'll be doing half the Sundays. The other half will be split between two elders, uh, Corey and Ed, and then a couple pastors, uh, Joel and Matt and Arthur, and then one retired old guy that happens to be somebody that I look a little bit like, my father. And, uh, and so uh, he'll be uh, joining on the teaching team, and he recently retired and is now on staff with the Eastern District of the Free Church and, uh, and considers this now his home church, which makes me his pastor, uh, which is... <laughs> A very interesting dynamic, uh, to say the least. And so, why not, my mom and dad, why don't you guys stand up? This is a cool moment. These are my parents. Would you welcome them? So people don't believe me sometimes when I say that, you know, I, no, I'm coming back. I'm planning to come back on the, from this trip and, and this time away. And then, and, then I, and when they don't seem to believe, I just tell them, listen, my parents just bought a house in Mannheim to be near me. So I know they would not have done that if they'd have thought at all I was leaving, or I wouldn't have let them do that if I thought at all I was leaving. I, my plan is to be here for many more years, Lord willing. If the church will have me, I will certainly be glad to stay here with LEFC. And so I hope you sense that God will continue to keep the momentum going throughout the summer. I personally love the series as I've been uh, helping plan with the, the group. Uh, I'm really excited about what this church will be sitting under and teaching throughout these summer months. And uh, it might be a bit intimidating to come back uh, considering what you're going to be sitting under. Having said that, we're going to conclude these last two weeks, today and next week, in the book of 2 Corinthians, and, uh, and, and so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 11 today. Last week we were in 12, we're going to go back to 11, go to 12, and then we're going to go into the book of 1 Peter uh, today. So again, this letter written to the Corinthians, very personal uh, it's got a, it gets into some pretty sensitive issues, uh, and that's why he gets honest and, and talks about the broken relationship between him and that church, and, and he's helping them grow through that, in that he said, let's get at the real issues. Let's not just play at the surface. Let's get below the surface and deal with real issues, real life issues, and that's what we've been doing, dealing with the last uh, several months uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Last week, though, uh, as I shared at the beginning of the, of the sermon, I said, this one's going to get personal. And it got very personal for me as I shared the journey that my wife and I went through uh, back in 1998 with the birth of our daughter. And uh, where there were several things that, that in a, basically her first year of life, multiple surgeries, multiple points where the doctors say, oh, 98% of the time it will look like this. And that 98% you know, is pretty good. The 2% is what you don't want to be part of. Every time they said something like that, 
Our daughter fell in the 2%. And they got to a place where it was so relentless with, you know, having this new child and, and having surgeries and bad news coming regularly. And we had prayed over her. We had, had the anointed, her anointed with oil by our elders, and they prayed around her. And all these things, you would think that, that we could have got, received better news, and it kept being darker. I got to a place where I was angry at God. It's one of the darkest moments for me when I honestly felt like God was not hearing our prayers and I'd go into the waiting room of seeing other children going through similar struggles and, and could tell that the parents were, had been living rough lifestyles and weren't really caring for the children the way we had cared for our children. I mean, I'm, I'm admitting my judgment. I'm just acknowledging it and sitting there being, uh, uh, you know, upset that's like, we did everything right and our child is still suffering. I pleaded with God, I begged with God multiple times to heal her. We'd been told in the midst of that journey that she would likely couldn't, wouldn't be able to walk. And when you have that unknown standing before you, you're left with, you know, God, where's the hope in this? Why would you allow this to happen? And for those of you that know my daughter, she is walking and it's been a beautiful journey. But I, but I have to say there's other parts of her journey that haven't been so hard because we still did not know the rest of her journey. And I'm going to leave it at that. But for those of you that understand, we've had so many things that's happened in her life and she continues to deal with those challenges. And we have to continue to trust. Many of you can relate, as, as one sharing last week, that you've been at the place that Paul was, where he says in chapter 12, I begged God for relief. I can't continue with this pattern being what it is. Can you change it, God? Will you not heal her? Or can you change the situation? Can you do something miraculous to show your glory? And I will give you glory if you do that miracle. Only to see it, changed. it kept staying the same. It didn't change. There wasn't relief. And I had to come to a place of being okay with that. You see, when Paul begged God to relieve him of whatever that thorn in the side was that he mentions in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, that when he asked for relief and God chose not to, God's message to Paul directly was, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. And my power will be made perfect in your weakness. I don't like that message. I'm just being honest. It's, it's not the feel good. I would rather God had said, you know what? You have pleaded to me. You have honored me. You, I have heard your cry. I'm going to do exactly as what you asked. That would have been an awesome verse. And how many of us would cling to it? But I don't hear when we're in the midst of the storm, clinging to the statement where God says, my grace is enough. And in your weakness, I am going to display my power. It's a powerful verse, but it's not one we claim. It's because it suggests that we're not going to receive what we want to hear. You feeling me on this? I mean, how many people have we pleaded with God on behalf of them, people that are sick or, or struggling or dying, and we didn't receive the news we wanted? I have been a part of, again, elders praying over people. We've seen miracles happen, we've seen healings happen, and we've seen other times where we have to just trust God's grace is sufficient and his power will be made known 
through the weakness of those who are suffering. I don't like that statement, but I'm thankful it's there. Because it teaches us how to have a healthy perspective towards God in the midst of our storms. You see, there's the aspect of knowing that God is good in his character and loving in his character and is all-powerful and capable, and then to know that when in your suffering situation or difficult situation, that God's going to allow that to continue, you have to try to measure up your understanding of God to your own experience. Paul had to do that. And I think we can better appreciate Paul's response to God when God said, my grace is enough, my power will be made known through through weakness. I, I think we can better appreciate Paul's plea when we go back to chapter 11 and look at the list of what Paul had gone through before he even got to the place of pleading and begging God for whatever this thorn in the flesh was. So chapter 11, and we're gonna look beginning in verse 24, I believe it is. Verse 24, Paul speaking, five times, five times I was beaten with the 40 lashes minus one. Pause there. How many of you have ever seen the passion of the Christ? Okay, so the worst scene, where I can't even look, I yet to this day have a hard time looking at the scene when Jesus willingly allows himself to be shackled to a post to be beaten. 40 minus 1. Paul experienced that five times. Imagine what his back looked like. Every time consecutively that they would do this you know and it happened over over years I'm sure these five different occasions but every time they would rip his coat off his back they would see oh this is not his first time five times he was beaten all because he was living out for Jesus verse 25 three times he was beaten with rods this is where they, they take these, these rods and they just begin to pound you. you. This happened to Jesus after they put the crown on him. They began to beat him with rods upon the crown where he's driving those thorns into his head. And then they were beating him again with the, with the, when they, had, they put that, that royal robe around him. They were beating him again with rods after he'd just been received the lashes, those 39 lashes. And, and so the pain must have been excruciating. For Paul, three times this happened. Once he was pelted with stones. Could you imagine being stoned? Could you imagine having people throw rocks at you? That happened to him. Three times he was shipwrecked. Now coming from Kansas, where I grew up away from large bodies of water. The idea of floating in the open ocean. No way. Not my thing. I wouldn't, I've seen way too much on Shark Week to enjoy the open waters. 
I like being in the boat. I'm fine being on the boat. I'm fine being on the shorelines, swimming there. But I've seen big fish swim by, and I'm walking on water like Jesus did. I mean, I am not, I am a, a turf guy, all right? Not the surf, I'm the turf, all right? And so he says, I was shipwrecked three times, and with that, he was out on that open water for a night and a day. I mean, so he's left out there vulnerable to the elements. Verse 26, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored, I have toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger, I have thirsted, and I've gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. Then whatever this thorn in the side is that is causing such agony... He begs God to remove it. You don't see anything about Paul complaining about what has happened to him in chapter 11. He's just acknowledging, I have suffered for having made the change to go towards Jesus Christ. For him, when he hears God say, after begging him for relief, for him to hear God say, my grace is sufficient, it is enough. Paul gets it. Before Paul had accepted the testimony of Christ for his own life, what was Paul doing? He was the champion of persecuting believers, followers of Jesus. He was going and having them arrested. He was having them killed. And he was on his way to Damascus to do the same there after doing it in Jerusalem. But on the way, God interrupted his life. And showed grace to Paul. You see, Paul would have been left better. He would have been better left to have been just simply find a disastrous end in his life and suffer the rest of his life in hell for all that he had done against the church. He had arrested mothers and fathers. He had arrested children. All that is stated in Scripture. He did not spare anyone. And he bragged about it. That kind of man is worthy of hell. But yet God decided he will be my champion, not the adversary's champion. He will be my champion for the gospel. And yes, he will suffer like he caused others to suffer. So with all that in mind, God looks at Paul when Paul's begging for relief. My grace is enough. I've spared you from an eternal damnation. I've spared you from a life where you would become miserable. I have spared you all those things, and now I've empowered you. I've used you. In spite of all these things that have been done in your life where you've suffered greatly, I keep showing power through you, which says, my power is made perfect in weakness. People could look at Paul's life and say, man, that guy's had a rough 
But yet, God continues to display power through him. And the only way to explain that is to say there is divine power in the life of Paul because his attitude should be that of being angry, disappointed, being downtrodden, being defeated. But instead, he continues to speak all the more boldly. How else can you explain it if this is your list? If this was your list, would you have the same tenacity as Paul? And if you did, people would begin to say, what is it with you? And then that's the opportunity to claim God's grace has worked in my life. How else can I not choose to continue to honor him with my life? I'm sure people would say, well, it's not working for you. Look at how you're suffering. But Paul stays the course. In fact, his response to God's statement saying, my grace is enough and my power will be made perfect in weakness. Look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 10. It says, that is why, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight, I delight in my weaknesses. I delight in the insults I receive. I delight in the hardships that might happen because I'm walking with Jesus. I delight in the persecutions that have happened because I bear Jesus' name. I delight in the difficulties. And then he can acknowledge exactly what God had said to him. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's God's strength that is now on display, not Paul's. See, when we are at our weakest, God's power brings us to our greatest moments of strength because we are not relying on our power, but his power. You see, I am absolutely confident that Paul, after being beaten any of those five times with those lashes, or any of those three times with the rods, or even after having been on the open seas, I'm sure he was exhausted mentally and physically. But God kept moving and working through Paul powerfully. So Paul says, I delight in it. What kind of man delights in that storyline? What kind of man delights in the fact that God says, listen, I'm not going to relieve you of what you're suffering right now, even though you've begged me. I'm going to let it continue to happen because my grace is enough in you and I want my power to be displayed through you. What kind of man then says, all right then, I celebrate that. This is where we need to go to Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 4, it's towards the end of your Bibles. Peter being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. The one who also said on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, saying, I will go to the death for you. That same Peter, Jesus told him, you're not going to die for me tonight. In fact, you're going to disown me by the morning time three times. Jesus goes to the cross, dies three days later, resurrects from the grave. Peter's one of the first to be there at that grave, to see the empty tomb, and being in amazement that this has happened. Days later, Jesus and Peter now have to talk out what happened that night when he denied him three times. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me a second time? Peter, do you love me a third time? Peter is broken by the three questions. 
I'm sure it's not lost upon him that it was three times Christ asked him, do you love him? Corresponding to the three times Peter denied him. And then a powerful moment happens where Jesus looks at Peter, don't worry, Peter. You will, end of the, in the end of the day, suffer for me and pay the ultimate price of martyrdom in my name. So Peter knows he's going to die a violent death. He knows this. But being true Peter, he kind of looks at Jesus, well, what about John? <laughs> what about him? Is he going to join me in this? I don't want to be the only one. And, God, and Jesus says, it's not a matter of your concern whether he dies that way or not. So Peter goes into his ministry career. He is launched into making disciples, knowing that he is going to die for that cause. Okay, so understanding. He is writing this letter, knowing that Jesus' final words to him, or at least one, some of them, is that you are going to die for my name. We know from history that Peter indeed does die for the cause of Christ, hung upside down on a cross. But before he was hung upside down on a cross, they killed his family in front of his eyes. So we have from historical records. Peter suffered greatly, but he believed fully. So you got to understand that when we're about ready to read this text from Peter, he is talking to a church that's at the pinnacle it's at the pinnacle of suffering. They're being attacked. They're being physically harmed for being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the context. And so Peter says this to them, knowing his end is going to be a violent death, knowing that these people are suffering violence and, and suffering greatly. He says this in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But as rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or as a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is, the time, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? By the way, isn't that cool? God's household. By the way, in the text, God's oikos, just saying. All right? So in this, it says, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who are not a part of God's oikos? His family, his friends who obey the gospel of God. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves then to their faithful creator and, keyword, continue to do good. So Peter here is on fire. When I read this text, he is speaking boldly. He is speaking out of the crucible of difficulty. And he is saying to this people, listen, we have to have the right attitude, the right mindset about the suffering that each of us are experiencing. And the first mindset is this. 
Expect challenges. Expect challenges. Expect storms. Expect they're going to come. Because if you expect storms, it will remove much of the shock that often then causes us to blame God or to have fear of God in a negative way or to be angry at God. You see, if you expect the storm, then you're not as concerned that when it happens as to the cause of the storm. If you go about life not expecting storms, in other words, you expect life to always be easy because you're one of God's chosen. Then when storms do come, you're shocked. Like, why would this happen to me? And that only leads you to a place of you begin to question God and wonder why God would ever allow that to happen. And then you might even ask questions. Perhaps I sinned. Perhaps I did something to take God off. But if there's no clear answers there, then you're only left with, this shouldn't happen. And there's shock, and there's anger, and there's depression. Peter says, friends, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised. Expect it. Now, for those that, that, that meet me for the first time, that interact and find out I'm not from Lancaster County, uh, that, that they're shocked I'm willing to stay here uh, as a result of that, but then they find out I'm from Kansas, they're like, oh, I've never lived there. And I'll be like, Why? Too many tornadoes. And I'm like, well, I didn't, I lived my, most of my younger years, I mean, up through age 18, living in Kansas, never really thinking about tornadoes. And it made me think that as I'm looking at this, because when it says, do not be surprised at your fiery ordeal, or your sufferings, or your difficulties, or your storms, I go back and I think, why is it that I didn't grow up afraid of tornadoes living there? It's because at the youngest of age, you're taught to expect that they're going to happen. In one year alone, over 350 tornadoes hit Kansas just two years ago. 350 in one season. I mean, here, people, you know, I find it's interesting that they're like, they would never live there because of tornadoes. But since I've lived in Lancaster County, we've had fire uh, tornado warnings here three times. I was like, well, that's not too far off the pace that I experienced in Kansas. The difference is, in Kansas, you can see the storm coming. Here, you can't. Too many trees, too many hills. So I don't like that at all. But out there, you can see the storms coming from the west to the east, which was part of the training as a little kid, that you were taught from a youngest of age that when the storms are coming and the fire whistle begins to, to blare and it, and it goes off in a repeated fashion when it's a tornado warning, then you know that you're to go to your, your, your basements. But before you do, what do people do? They go outside to look to see where the storm's at. It's a bizarre thing, I know. But in Kansas, you can see the storm coming. So you go and you look, but you stay near shelter. And then you can run to that shelter and get there. And you go to your basements. If you don't have a basement, you go to the tub. And when you're in the basement, you go to the northwest corner because that's how you're taught. That's where the debris field will least likely hit when a storm's going from west to east. All those things are taught us so that we don't live our lives in fear. We live our lives prepared. It's a very different mindset. We don't train our kids how to handle tornadoes here. Hence, the fear right? But when you grow up out there where they happen more regularly, it, you're just prepared. You, you know that it's going to happen so you don't get bent out of shape about it. And you, and you just pray that it doesn't hit direct. And you do all the things necessary to stay safe. In the same way, Peter says, don't be shocked. Storms happen. 
It gets difficult for believers. So we should not be surprised by it. We should be prepared for it. And then second mindset is to not fear the unknown. We can't let our lives get bent out of shape fearing the things that we don't know. I remember the day that we found out that my wife had cancer a year ago in March. And in that first phone call, it lasted like 20 minutes. And they were giving all the litany of things that we needed to be concerned about and to begin to do. It was overwhelming. And much of it could have caused you to become so distraught because there's so many unknowns. At some point in the journey, you've got to decide when you're in the storm. I can't let my mind or my heart be so captivated by what I don't know is going to happen, but rather trust in the one who does know what's going to happen and rest there. I take the present and the future for what I need to do to prepare, but I cannot live in fear of the unknowns. When you look at what, what he's saying here, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal as if something strange was happening. Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's an interesting thing because he's saying that the unknowns aren't something you get your eyes on. What you get your eyes on is the glory of God being revealed. Which could mean in the present or the near future but it could also be eternally. We don't know what God's storyline is for your storm. We just know that at some point, whether on this earth or in eternity, the glory of God will be fully revealed through your life. That's the promise he gives. I'm gonna glorify myself through you. Sometimes it's in your life and living. Sometimes it's in your death. But ultimately, you will experience the glory here, here on this earth and in eternity. So the mindset is this. You expect the storm. You expect the challenge. You don't fear the unknowns because that will, that will incapacitate you. And then you have an eternal perspective realizing that God's got this. Whether in my life is going to end by this storm or I'm, it's going to be extended through the storm, God's got this and glory will come eventually. That's the truth of what's being said here. And then you, this idea in verse 16, I love the language. This is why I'm saying Peter is fired up. Look at what he says here in verse 16. He says, however, if you suffer, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a, as a thief or, or any kind of criminal or meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God, you bear his name. God its name through his son Jesus Christ is tattooed on your life. And when you're going through the hardship of life, whatever that storm might be, it is the opportunity for the name of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed even at the most intense parts of the storm. That's an opportunity to be proud to be with Jesus. And I see this in Peter's statement. It's not easy when you're in the storm. It is not easy, but if you cling to Jesus and just say, in spite of the unknowns, in spite of my storm, I, I, I do have an eternal glory. And you know what, doggone it, I'm proud to be a bearer of Jesus' name. That's the attitude, the mindset of Christ that we should have when we're in the midst of the storm. And then when you look at, at how Paul or Peter ends this text, so he's contexted all the mindsets we should have in this, and then he concludes with this. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves then to the faithful creator and to continue to do good. 
That's what Peter's saying. Saying that if life is going to get tough, and it will, we should expect it, that I'm going to trust that God's got this. I'm going to trust that, that when I bear his name, he will bring glory through my life and that I can still praise him when the storm is difficult. I don't normally do this, but we're going to show a video here at this point. Consider your story in light of this song. down and wiped our tears away stepped in and saved the day but once again I say amen and it's still raining as the thunder rolls I barely hear you whisper through the rain I'm with you as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am, and every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. Never left my side And though my heart is torn I will praise you in the storm I remember when I stumbled in the wind You heard my cry to you And raised me up again my strength is almost gone How can I carry on If I can't find you But as the thunder rolls I barely hear you whisper through the rain I'm with you And as your mercy falls I'll raise my hands And praise the God who gives takes away But I'll praise you in this storm And I will lift my hands For you are who you are No matter where I am And every tear I've cried You hold in your hand You never left my side And though my heart is torn I will praise you in this storm. 
this past week, I have heard from so many that are in the midst of suffering and difficulty. Paul's charge, where he says, I will celebrate, I will delight in my sufferings. And then Peter's charge was saying, we're called to continue. The option to choose to not continue when you're in the midst of the storm is then you're left with self-pity. You're left with feeling abandoned. You're left with depression. But if you choose to continue, God restores. God builds up. God provides strength. His power is made perfect in weakness. We can't stop living in the midst of the storm. We're called to praise God in the storm. How many of you by an uplifted hand, would say, I'm in the midst of a storm right now. And I'd welcome prayer. Several hands. I want to pray. So God, I know from having talked to many here in this room, many in first service, also others who listened online, there's a lot of burdens. There's a lot of storms. And there's people we pray on behalf of that where it's not our storm, it's their storm. God, this is, a, this is a teachable moment where we learn about your grace. We also learn about your power and how it's manifested through weakness. But God, I just ask for all those who lifted their hands that they will never stop continuing to go forward trusting in you. They will trust in your work, trust in your goodness, and live out the hope of glory. So God, I just pray that in this moment as we remember your suffering, that we'll find hope even in that story. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Just know that it is opportunity in the midst of the storm to acknowledge and know the strength of God more than any other season of your life. So we praise him in the storm. We praise him for the future glory. And we praise him knowing that we can continue to live today. So we live continuing with our eyes on him, fixed on him, not on the storm. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless.